Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. The two went down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet the Spirit had not come upon any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. A few weeks after Easter last spring, delegations from United Methodist Annual Conferences all over the world came to Fort Worth, Texas. 992 delegates speaking 13 different languages. The one thing we had in common, our baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In one of our opening worship services, the second one, we were being asked to remember our baptism. Sitting just across the aisle from our Oklahoma delegation were the delegates from Russia and Germany, uh, South America, uh, South Africa, uh, the Ivory Coast, South Korea, all of them with their headsets on listening in their own languages to what was being said. And we were all being asked if we would reaffirm the vows that we took when we were first baptized. The presiding bishop asked, do you still believe in the one God, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? I do. Do you believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the long-awaited Messiah of God? That you must confess your sins to him. He will forgive you, grant you life, life abundant, life everlasting. I do. Vow after vow. And suddenly, as our last response died away, I do, this big bass voice started singing, Come to the waters, come to the waters, children. And the children started coming from all over that huge convention center in Fort Worth. Children coming down the aisles. They all had on either dark slacks or skirts. They had on white blouses or shirts. And when they got to the altar, the bishop dipped a little green branch into a font and started sprinkling water on them. And then every one of these children, whom we later learned had just been confirmed in various Methodist churches in the Fort Worth area, were given a little bowl of water in one of those green branches, and they started back up all these many different aisles, sprinkling water on all of us. Remember your baptism. Remember your baptism as he continued to sing, Come to the waters. Come to the waters, children. And then he sang, Come to the waters, Lord, and bless your children. This Sunday in the church year is about the baptism of Jesus. The Reverend Evenry Campbell read us a text from Luke's Gospel about John's preaching, those who were coming to be baptized, which included Jesus of Nazareth, who sought baptism. <clears throat> the text from which I'm preaching today, also written by Luke, his book of Acts. Let's take a look. I think to really get into this text, you need to start at least as early as the beginning of chapter 8. In the beginning of chapter 8, we're told that young Stephen has just been stoned to death. You need to remember how many centuries the Jews had lived and died by the belief that there is only one God. That you must have no other God but Him. 
Suddenly, here were a group of people saying that that one God had somehow appeared in Mary's child, Jesus of Nazareth. That God was in a human being. Now, that's what Romans said, that their gods came in human form, and the Greeks said their gods came in human form, but the Jews had never said the one true God had been revealed in human form. And the anger between these two groups, those who believed that God was present in Jesus and those who believed He was not, finally led to the point that young Stephen was dragged out to the edge of the city, thrown down into the one of those rock quarries, and others rained stones down on his head till he died. And this eighth chapter of the book of Acts says, And after this severe persecution, all except the apostles scattered from the city of Jerusalem. Now, by apostles, they mean the original twelve. Those who had been chosen by the flesh and blood Jesus to be closest to him in his ministry, they remained in Jerusalem. That's what he had told them to do. I'll get back to that later in the sermon. In, in the very beginning of the book of Acts, they are told, wait in Jerusalem till the Holy Spirit comes. So they were still waiting. But all the others fled from the persecution. So they left the city of Jerusalem, went into the territory surrounding it called Judea, and then into the territory just north of it called Samaria. So this severe persecution, this tragic murder of young Stephen led to new growth for the church because those who fled kept preaching and teaching that Jesus was, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah of God. I remember a few years ago when we were in China. Uh, Trey was already married and he and Allison were living in a different city from us, but Jason went along with us. And there were five members of Boston Avenue Church who went with us. There were eight of us all together. Now, the Communist Party was still very much in control of all the travel services in China. And we were told that we would be on a need-to-know basis, that we would be in five different cities in China in 15 days, that we'd have three days in each one of these, that because the cities were so far apart, we would not have the same guide for all 15 days. We would have a different guide in each city. But that when we got off the plane, there would be a guide there to meet us with our name on a card. And this guide would take us to the hotel that had been assigned to us, would take us to the places we had asked to go, and would deliver us back to the airport when that guide had been given the time we should be back there. All we knew was that um, between these various cities, uh, we would be on China Air. That's all we knew. All right. Everything went well when we got into Beijing. Here was a, a happy-faced young man standing there with the Biggs group on a, on a card. And he took us to the hotel and treated us wonderfully well and got us back to the airport. And we flew down to Qi'an. We wanted to see the famed terracotta figures. Everything went pretty well there till we got back to the airport. Then our plane had mechanical problems. It was sitting out in 100-degree heat. Uh, and we were made to stay in this little area. And it became one hour, two hours, three hours. No air conditioning in this facility. It's about 100 degrees. It's about 99% humidity. Uh, one elderly gentleman fainted right in the middle of this crowd. You're having to stand in line, I mean, literally with arms pressed in this tightly because there's so many people. Finally, we're told that we can go get on the plane. And when we get on the plane, you can see that all of the lettering inside are Russian. This is an old Russian plane, and it's at least 40 years old. Um, 
Gail and I end up drawing the last row of the plane right across from Clay and Beth Pape on the other side of the aisle there. And it is so hot on this plane that they finally pass out little fans just to keep you from passing out. They rev up the engines and then shut them off. I look out my little window and there's a fellow coming on a bicycle with a ladder over one shoulder. He puts the ladder beside the engine mount, takes out a screwdriver and starts tinkling, gets on the bicycle, backs up a little way, and they fire up the engines again and then shut them off. He puts the ladder up against the plane again and does something with a screwdriver and backs away and they crank it up again and we start down the runway. But where planes in our country get to the end of the runway and they rise as quickly as possible, I really wasn't sure we were going to clear the trees at the end of the runway. I mean, it was rising so slowly. And then it got dark and we ended up in the middle of a thunderstorm trying to get into Shanghai. And those of you who have been in thunderstorms before know that you seem to go down, down, down forever. You know you've got to be close to the ground. And then we hit the runway so hard it shook everything. That was the night I really thought I will die in China. I will die here. I didn't tell Gail. I looked across the aisle at Clay Pape every once in a while because he had been a mechanic with American Airlines for 40 years and I knew he must be going like this. At least let me have the screwdriver. But he was saying nothing. So we got to, we got to Shanghai and here was a young woman. It's still pouring down rain and she's standing under an umbrella with Biggs Group, you know, and so we followed her and when we were told three days later, all right, it's time for you to go on to Guilin now. We were worried to death. What if he'd draw an old 40-year-old Russian plane again? And when we walked out, here was a brand-new Boeing 757 jet. I mean, you know how a new car smells. That's the way that jet smelled. The seats, leather, and I, we may have been the first flight, if not the first, certainly one of the first flights. And where the other plane was so crowded... On that plane, I counted 14 flight attendants and only 12 passengers. Eight of us and four others. And they took us to Guilin. Well, this is certainly better than before. And we get off the plane at Guilin, and there is no one with a sign. And I started asking various people, do you speak English? No, no. Do you speak English? No, no. No guide. So we don't know where the hotel is. We don't know what we're supposed to do next. And we ask and ask. And finally, one brave young man says, uh, I would try. And so he gets on the phone and calls this travel bureau that belonged to the Communist Party. And they said, well, our hotel had been shifted. And our guide, they told him, was a certain person. Uh, they didn't know where she was, but they would try to track her down. And surely enough, within a few minutes, our little bus pulled up and this young lady jumped out and what an animated face. What a precious, sweet, young Chinese woman face, uh, late 20s perhaps. And she came running toward us and she had her verification saying the, the message that she had been sent was that we were to come in at 2 o'clock. We'd gotten before 10 o'clock in the morning. But I've never forgotten what she said to us next. She said, you probably know this, but let me remind you. In Chinese, the word for crisis is also the word for opportunity. And so you've gotten off to a bad start, but you and I have four more hours together than we thought we were going to have. Let's go see Guilin, she said. She was wonderful.
wonderful. So in the Bible, there's so many times when God's Word seems to be temporarily set back, even defeated, and guess what? It was another opportunity for the Word of God to be spread, to be disseminated to ever greater numbers. Let's put down number two. The apostles at Jerusalem, those that had not fled, heard that Samaria had accepted the Word of God. Now, you need to remember who the Samaritans were. If you go way back into the Hebrew Scriptures, remember that Jacob fathered twelve sons. But only two of them were born a favorite wife. First, he was married by his uh, shenanigans of his father-in-law to the wrong sister, you remember. Leah, the one with the weak eyes. And he and Leah started making babies. And when he got the one he really loved, Rachel, she didn't seem to be able to conceive. So she offered her handmaiden to make babies for her. And Jacob said, whatever you think, dear. And they started making babies. And then Leah quit making babies. And she said that she didn't want to get behind on Leah's side of the family. So she said, well, here's my handmaid. They make babies with her. And he said, whatever you think, dear. And so between these three, two handmaids and Leah, he fathered ten sons. And finally, Leah did conceive. I mean, Rachel did conceive. And she had two babies, you remember, Joseph and then Benjamin. She died giving birth to Benjamin, and she was buried, the Bible says, at a little nowhere place called Bethlehem. But centuries later, ten tribes never felt as loved as the other two because they were not children of the favored wife. So from roughly 1750 all the way down to the time of King David in the year 1000, 750 years. Descendants of the ten tribes have felt not so loved as the other two. So the ten tribes had settled in the north of this promised land and called themselves Israel, and the tribes in the south called themselves Judah. David was strong enough to build a new capital city right on the border between north and south and to get all 12 tribes to come back together. Solomon was strong enough to maintain that union. Then Rehoboam succeeded his father Solomon upon Solomon's death, called in his advisors, said, how do we begin this new reign? And the advisors said, your father and your grandfather taxed the people pretty hard. I tell you what they would really love right now, a tax break. Took a lot of money to build a temple on Mount Moriah. Took even more money to build the wonderful palace and the capital city. How about a tax break? That wasn't what he wanted to hear, so he dismissed all of them and called in some younger guys his own age. And they said, you have to show them your king, that you will put your heel on their necks and tax them even more. Well, the only problem was he was not his grandfather. He was not his father. And so the northern tribes just said, well, hooey on you. And they went back to do their own thing. So it was separated again, north and south. And those northern tribes eventually built themselves a capital city they called Samaria. And they had some really bad kings. We particularly remember the stories of Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Remember? Terrible, terrible. And finally a power arose for the north called Assyria and they swept down and overran the northern tribes, raped, plundered, intermarried until they ceased to exist as a separate people. We still speak of the ten lost tribes of Israel, right? Guess what? Their descendants, all those years later, more than 700 years after the Assyrians, mixed-blooded folk. 
when Jesus approached one of these women, you remember, at the well, she said to him when he asked for a drink, you're asking me for a drink? Jews and Samaritans do not use the same utensils. That's who they were. Mixed-blooded folk, Gentile, non-Jew for the biggest part. So here again, you see, Epiphany is about God's willingness to reveal Himself to us Gentiles, to include us in the plan of salvation and the mission to all the world to try to convince the world there's only one God and what this God expects of us all. Okay. In Samaria, they were believing. They were believing. From what Eva Marie read to us, they have repented. They have been baptized. <clears throat> this past week, Wednesday, Thursday, I was host to the pastors of some of our largest Methodist churches in the country. Uh, they came from Denver and Colorado Springs and Houston and Dallas and Lubbock and so on. Um, we really had a great 24 hours together. Uh, we talked about a lot of different things, but finally, just before we were ready to adjourn at noon on Thursday, um, one of the guys said, anybody got any helps for sermon here? We're all preaching about the baptism of our Lord. Uh, anybody got any help? And one guy said, let me tell you something you won't believe, but it happened. He said, I was talking with my Episcopal friend the other day, and I won't even tell you which city it was. I was talking with my Episcopal friend and asking him how his holidays went. And he said, well, you know, I had a really strange experience. Uh, one of the wealthier families in my church invited me to an open house, uh, a, a Christmas reception, if you would. And my wife and I went and they had lots to eat and drink and so on. But as we're sort of wandering around speaking to different people, I glanced up over the fireplace. And there was a beautiful picture of their little daughter who's about two in a beautiful baptismal gown, long, white, with a little chain and a gold cross around her neck. I know this family. I had not baptized their daughter. So I sought out the father, sort of got him out of the crowd, and I asked, who baptized your little girl? And he sheepishly said, uh, she hasn't been baptized. Oh, really? That looks like a baptismal gown to me. And the father said, it is a baptismal gown. It's the one my wife wore when she was baptized. And she's kept it all these years for the baptism of our daughter. We were about to have a picture made of her. My wife thought of this beautiful gown and the photographer thought it was a great idea. So we took her picture in the baptismal gown. But she hasn't been baptized. And the group said, you are kidding me. You are kidding me that somebody would have their child's picture made as if she had been baptized when, in fact, she hadn't been baptized. She had not been baptized. This family had not taken that precious child of theirs to the church to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ, to ask the blessing of God upon this child, to mark her as a disciple of Jesus Christ with the waters of baptism. Well, at least the folks in Samaria had had that much. They'd had that much. This is number three. Third thing. They'd been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, but they had not received the Holy Spirit. Now, there are groups in Christendom who say, Aha, you have to have that second step. And that second step is speaking in tongues. Uh, don't think that's what Luke has in mind here at all. And I'll tell you why when we get to point four. But for right now, let me simply say, 
that to believe in the Lord Jesus was a big and important step. To call this child of Mary's the Lord was a big step forward. The Lord translates that same understanding as the one who appeared to Moses at the burning bush. That the one who was at the burning bush, who sent Moses back to Egypt, who did in fact free his people, who led them through the waters and brought them back and gave them the Ten Commandments and eventually the Promised Land, that one was present in Jesus of Nazareth. That was a big step. The other day I was reading a review of a play that's now on uh, being staged again. And this Wall Street Journal uh, interviewer and reviewer of the play was saying, this is really well done. It's a Eugene Ionesco play. Boy, my mind ran back. When I was in seminary, one of my professors was Dr. Ronald Sleeth. Uh, you've come to love the hymn called The Hymn of Promise, written by Natalie Sleeth. Well, Ronald was her husband. And Dr. Ronald Sleeth, I thought, was so creative, really wonderful. And I took every course he taught while I was in the seminary. And one of those was called Preaching Values in Contemporary Literature. Uh, he acknowledged that there were lots of us who were about to graduate from seminary who were going to be sent to little bitty towns where there was no theater group, none. But he said, that's no excuse. Uh, you can read current literature. You can read plays, even if you don't get to see plays actually being staged. And I remember reading Death of a Salesman before I'd ever seen it on stage. I read All My Sons long before I saw it staged. Uh, so I read a lot of plays in his class that I'd not, never, I had never seen staged. Eugene Ionesco, his play called The Chairs, was out about a dozen years when I was in seminary. The Chairs, the two primary figures in this play are more than 90 years old. A man and a woman not married to each other. But they're scurrying around this uh, retirement center talking about a great day when the orator comes. They keep calling him the orator. When the orator comes. And everyone who is there, when the orator comes, will hear the meaning of life. And so as the play goes on, and it, it has a lot of humor in it as well as pathos, but these two keep adding more chairs, more chairs. The stage is finally just filling up with empty chairs. And then the orator arrives. And he cannot hear. And he cannot speak. Curtain falls. What is that all about? Well, obviously, Eugene Ionesco believed there is no meaning to life. And those who claim to know the meaning of life don't know it either, because the one they're counting on to tell them cannot hear their prayers and will not speak the word they want to hear. And Dr. Sleeth, you see, had us read some of those plays because he was saying you can learn from positive illustrations. You can learn from negative illustrations. These people of Samaria, mixed blood, feeling put upon for centuries and centuries, believed what Philip told them. That there was one God and he had loved them enough to send Mary's child Jesus to live among them to be a healer, preacher, te teacher, one crucified, one raised from the dead, they believed. Number four. Well, Peter and John are sent down from Jerusalem to confirm that it's okay for these Samaritans to believe the Word of God, to be baptized, and to add the last ingredient here, the touch and blessing of the Holy Spirit. The touch and blessing of the Holy Spirit. 
But if you read the Gospel of Luke, as even Marie helped us read a portion, and then you read Acts, uh, Luke's very clear about what he thinks is going to happen here. As he begins the book of Acts, he says that when Jesus had been raised and was about to be ascended to the very right hand of God, the disciples said, so is this the end time? And Jesus said, you know, God never got around to telling me that. That's not for you to know. But wait here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will have power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the rest of the world. Power. Did you read Missy Buchanan's column? She was talking about her mother. Her mother died recently, 92 years old when she died. Missy said, I wish every person in the world could have a mother like mine. What a woman of strength. And yet, gracious and kind, not pushy, not, not forward, but, but so strong and wonderful and genuine. She said, since mother's death, I've gone through picture book after picture book and remembered so many great times. But of all the pictures I have of my mother, two of them involve hands. You notice when we confirm our children, we don't rebaptize those who've been baptized. If the waters of baptism have ever been extended to you, the grace of God has been extended to you, we lay our hands on the heads of those already baptized. And I ask you to pray with me that the Holy Spirit will come and whisper to this child now before me, I know you. You are my daughter, God is saying. I'm so glad you've come home to me and affirmed the faith into which your parents or grandparents had you baptized. I know you. You are my son. Nobody can ever take you from me. I'm glad you've come home to me. And then Dr. Pensera sounds a chime up in the ceiling of our church here so that we're reminded when we ask the Holy Spirit to come, the Holy Spirit comes, whispers to that child kneeling right there in front of us. The laying on of hands, receiving of the Spirit and power. Well, Missy says two pictures. She said, I was in a quandary. My mother is dying at 92 and my son and his wife are about to have their first baby. I wanted so much for my mother to live to see that first great-grandchild of hers. She was still alert, aware. She would know this child was, had been born. We didn't know if she was going to live long enough or not. Well, lo and behold, she did. The baby was born. And by the time they could take this baby from the hospital, they brought it to my mother's room. And she said, my son Matthew laid this precious baby right next to, his, to its great-grandmother. And she said, I saw him take out his camera and, and, and start to frame this, but I thought he was taking sort of the whole thing, and instead he had focused in on their hands. And this 92-year-old had a hand extended toward this baby, and this baby, just a few days old, had curled his little hand around part of hers. She said, I love that. I love it. We put it at the foot of her bed until she died a few days later. And the other, she said, was many years ago when my daughter was only four, Missy said, and we had all gone to the beach. We'd had a great time at the beach that day. It was late afternoon. The sun was about to set. And I thought, wow, this will make a great picture. And so I, I got my camera and, and I'm framing this whole thing. And there's my mother standing right in the edge of the surf holding the hand of my little four-year-old, her granddaughter. 
And just as I got ready to push the button, something happens that does happen at the beach. An unusually large wave, bigger than the ones you've been experiencing, suddenly broke right where the two of them were standing. And you see this water just against them. But I noticed that my mother, who's been to the beach many times in her life and knows this kind of thing can happen, has this precious four-year-old's hand and enough of her wrist that she has a really firm hold. And that wave does not knock either of them down. The laying on of hands and the awareness there's an even bigger hand that grants power to us all. 